Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 56th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is absolute unproductive beauty. I'm joined by Joanna Scott, the author of Excuse Me While I Disappear. The publisher of this collection of short stories is Little Brown and Company. Joanna is the author of 12 works of fiction, including Arrogance, a Penn Faulkner finalist, and The Mannequin, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her awards include a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Rosenthal Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Welcome to the show, Joanna. Thank you, Dan, for inviting me. Oh, I'm delighted that you could make it. So give us a little bit of an overview. What in the world is uh, driving this short story collection of yours? Well, this uh, collection of stories, excuse me, while I disappear, is in part about stories, uh, about the power of stories, about the way we organize our lives into narrative in order to make meaning. Also, in part, about reading. I I found myself at this point in life, I've, I've written a number of books. I've been teaching literature and creative writing for many years. I have been interested in the way reading is changing. Um, I have some concerns and yet am hopeful as we go forward in this brave new world of technology. And I, I, I think that combination of both worry and hopefulness is sort of empowering this collection of stories. I ended up writing stories about lost stories, stories that had been destroyed or forgotten never found, never told. Uh, I, I just wanted to be thinking and, and, and encourage readers to think about the power of stories and the danger of losing our connection to them. Um, so uh, the we, I, right at the beginning of the collection there's a quote from Nabokov it's a, it's actually buried in the middle of the intricate novel Pale Fire and he asks the narrator just asks almost like like coming out of the fiction asks well, what if we all suddenly forgot how to read what if we couldn't read uh, all of us what if we lost it and and I found myself just haunted by that possibility and so began writing stories out of that uh, 
that question and I uh, thinking about both history and the future. Uh, what if, what if, what if their stories we will never know? What if their stories we can't read? Uh, can we, can we preserve reading even as it changes uh, in the years ahead? So, you know, those, the, it, in some ways, I've given an account of the, the motives behind the collection, the, each story had an independent genesis. They, each story came out of uh, one uh, discovery or, or uh, an encounter or uh, a distinct question that I might have had. But they're all united by this, uh, this attention to reading and the possibility of, of losing it and the hope that we will continue to find meaning in written narrative. Well, I certainly I, I, I share your, I think maybe whatever you hit, Joanna, may have created a re-echo. Oh, really? Oh, shoot. Yeah. Can you, I don't know if you can take it off. Uh-oh. Okay. I, hang on. Uh, so there's a re-echo, so we're going to have to go through that again, huh? Um, no, your answer was perfectly good. When I started to talk, then I could hear myself almost like... you can. Hear, so you have a re-echo there? Kind of, at least in my headphones as I'm talking, yeah. And I, I didn't do anything different than I normally do. I, I don't know, I, I've forgotten to tell people or even knew whether or not they hit that button for right, recordings. Right, right. It was the only... Uh, Other option there. Uh, right not, now I'm not here. Shoot. I am not seeing, I mean, it just disappeared. Uh, and now there's nothing to click for me. I, I okay. Um, what, what if I click, I, uh, I mean, I can click on each microphone, but then you wouldn't be able to hear me. Right. I, no, I think I, yeah, I, I, I'm not very techie, but I was just. You want to go right. back off and come back on again? Um, well, let me just talk for another moment. I'm, just, I'm trying to see if, I mean, it was really distinct when I first started talking after your answer, and now I don't have the same sensation. I think I'm going to try to go forward, but um, I'll just make a time note for Marshall. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so let's just see. Okay, so I'm I'm just going to assume we didn't have that mini conversation. Okay, and uh, I, I'm going to start in. And uh, sorry for that. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. So, Joanna, I'm really fascinated by what you just said because I, I often think about and worry about whether or not we live in a, a post literate society. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, video is driving us so much these days. Um, you know that it's going to be to the detriment of literature that you and I both love. I, I'm curious because you're talking about the modern world and the changes and how that was an impetus for the book, but the settings for this book jump all over the place. You know, well back into the you know late medieval, early Renaissance period in Italy. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a book that references Jim Bridger. I'm curious mm -hmm. as a writer, both for this collection and even beyond it, perhaps. But what kind of settings do you think for your stories tend to intrigue you, or how do you get to the settings that you end up using? Well, often I am drawn to history and to those corners of history that are not 
well-documented. I am always searching for uh, historical figures who have been forgotten. I, I, I love to find collections of letters, diaries from long ago by uh, people who have not registered in historical chronicles. So I just, you know, I'm always in search of lost stories. I, I always have been uh, throughout my career as a writer. I tend to draw from history without actually defining myself as an historical novelist. But this was the first book in which I had actually a setting in the future. And that was the first story I wrote for the collection, the Knowledge Gallery. Uh, it's it's set at a time when all books are electronic. And I imagine a situation in which the uh, the software implodes and we lose all the texts that have been transferred to uh, an electronic format. So I imagine that that scenario and and try to guess at, at what it would mean and then follow a character, a narrator, who is trying to recover some of these lost texts uh, and and facing to some extent an indifference among the public. Um, and then a resistance from some of the writers themselves. So uh, that it was interesting to move out of the past into the future for that particular story, and then to go back into the past and think about some of the same things. You know, what if we lost this story? What if a story was erased? What if uh, some? What if there was a great book? that we will never read because it was burned, destroyed. So uh, it's funny that this book, of all, the only book uh, of mine that uh, includes a, a setting in the future and that that was the, the first story and the others came out of that. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm also interested in, in how you tell the stories besides the, the setting, and I'm going to get into character in a moment. Uh, a number of them, and I think actually eight of them, are in the first person, but mm -hmm. others move into the third person, for instance. A as a writer, just in terms of the craft as a writer, how do you make that decision? How, how does it come about for you? I mean, a lot of this may be uh, you know, subconscious, um, so mm -hmm. I, I hate to delve into your craft in a way that you might not want to uh, you know, no, no, think about teacher, too much. But I always think delving is... is very important to do, even if uh, I don't have a proper answer for it. Uh. Um, I, I have told my students, I feel convinced that all fiction is written in first person. Uh, there, there's always, there's always an I, there's always a, a, a first person in control of the narrative who is not the author. I, uh, the, um, call them the presumed narrator. Uh, sometimes that narrator uh, is telling the story from a third person perspective, but will interrupt with an acknowledgement of her own presence. There's There are a couple instances and probably more than a couple in, in Henry James where I just, I just am fascinated by that, the boldness in which he uh, deep inside portrait of a lady say 
suddenly acknowledges a narrator who is telling the story, but is a, a, a kind of character in the story, but is not participating in the story. So I find that one of the most interesting strategies for um, uh, developing a, a point of view for fiction. Given that, I feel pretty comfortable moving between first person and and so-called third person if uh, if really I'm always writing in a in a first person, if I'm always thinking of some narrator who is not me, who is uh, making decisions about what to tell, uh, who is perhaps, you know, a, a, a little performative, who is uh, the, the, the character on stage. Uh, that's not me. I'm not on stage, but there's a character always on stage uh, who's telling the story. I, I actually think too, that I am, fiction is, is, it's really important to embrace the made up premise of it. Uh, once upon a time, a story begins, which is a flat out lie. And I just love that. <laughs> you know, it's just, no, it didn't happen, but I'm telling you it did. And we all understand that presumption and, and uh, some of us actually love it. But sometimes we forget what we can learn from that. Uh, and, and I guess I'm trying to reintroduce us to, to the learning that goes on in encounters with imaginative literature, the, the, the very nature of its falseness is uh, really important to a particular kind of understanding that fiction can give us because it's not true. We can't, and especially historical fiction. I, I, I wince when I, I see writers uh, somehow building up credibility because of accuracy. I yeah. If, if I want accuracy, if I want his, something uh, verifiable, I'm going to go to history. I'm not going to go to fiction. Uh, instead, what I want to see is is the mind at play, the the invention, the the author's uh, artistic creation. And so, the, with this, with a, a a narrator who is making up a story, I, I tend to, whether it's third person, whether it's first person, tend to. I invite readers to think about how the story is being made up, how the story is uh, being designed, uh, like like a painting is painted. Uh, I, I want readers to think about the colors used and and to think about their own powers of invention, their own ways of recasting experience in imaginative fashion uh which if it you know if it falsifies it that it can also bring some illumination to experience so that's a, it, and and perhaps a, a more conceptual answer than than you were seeing i, I have fashion. no i have no problem with the conceptual <laughs> answer whatsoever of the, of the point of view question no, uh, no that's that's quite right i'm gonna i'm gonna stay with that but uh, since you brought up henry james i'll tell you one quick little incident. So uh, when I was at Oxford University, the lectures are optional. And quite honestly, most of them get canceled after a few weeks because they're not so terribly exciting. But I remember when I was there, 
there was a man named Valentine Cunningham, and his lectures were like rock concerts, mm. as if Bono from U2 was speaking or something. And they were, you know, standing room only in some cases. Wow. And he mentioned he had one lecture on the Golden Bowl one time. And I just remember one line of all the lines, because he was a wonderful, brilliant speaker, never published anything. Uh-huh. And I kept checking for years, but he said, the great thing about Henry James is he chews more than he bites off. Oh, and I just, I just love that phrase. And, and Valentine would do his lectures and his jean jacket, which was underneath his black academic robe, would keep falling off and he'd be hitching it back on his shoulders. But he was so excited about what he was talking about. It was absolutely a mind at play. Oh, that's great. That is great. And and I wonder if that enjoyment, that pleasure that we take in, in witnessing that kind of performance is a little bit at risk now. Uh, our our uh, dedication to data and fact uh, in, in order to solve problems, really important, of course. We need data. Uh, we need information. Uh, but we also need play. Uh, and and it, it it gets the danger is that even to say that somehow seems childish or or unimportant play oh it's it's something that children do and uh, if we you know are, allow ourselves to um you know experience a work of art just for no other reason than to experience it, what do we gain? What do we learn? I mean, I do think we're constantly learning by every encounter uh, with something new, but it's it's not going to s- solve problems in the same way that information and data will help us solve problems. So I, in this age, I do think we're a little less open to uh, the the importance, the significance, the enriching place that play has in our lives. Yeah, and I thought the book very much brought that out as I kept reading through the collection that uh, the defense of that, which doesn't have obvious utility, and yet it has lots of value mm-hmm. and importance for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and along those lines, I, I thought it was really interesting that there was a story here called principles of uncertainty mm-hmm. it's also one of those stories where the point of view is most up at play mm-hmm. as to where it's coming from which i thought was a perfect fit for a, a title of a story with the word uncertainty in it mm-hmm. um I, I wonder if you want to say a bit more about that particular short story sure, and, the, sure. and the theme in general that uh, i just alluded to that story takes place on a, a train a subway train in new york city uh traveling um from station to station a bunch of strangers who who are expecting to have no interactions typical of a you know any subway ride i i found myself uh, imagining the the beginnings of the story when i was on a train with strangers looking around and the lights you know as they sometimes do on a subway the lights blinked on and off and and in that that moment of transition from darkness to light, I I thought all sorts of things can happen. And and the story goes much farther than my experience did, of course, and imagines a really wild thing that could happen in that instant 
when a light flickers on a subway car. And I really had fun uh, moving between those, those, the minds of these, these different characters as they're trying to process something that is really strange. So, and, and then, and then uh, I always like to consider what happens when one event results in different versions of it. Who do we believe? And I explore that in the story after, after the event of the story in which I, I, I guess at the risk of, of spoiling the suspense, I'll say <laughs> the event is that suddenly a, 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 an inf- a baby disappears for just for an instant. And then uh, all the different characters riding on the subway need to uh, need to give their version of it. And, and the versions don't necessarily... Uh, go together they they collide in some instances and and so that is something i'm exploring in the story what happens when when different versions different impressions of the same event i uh, really do do not match sure no that was one of my my favorites in the collection yeah. certainly maybe for that reason in part it made me think of uh that line in bob dylan's song tangled up in blue we all have the same story to tell we just tell it from a different point of view. Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. Oh my God. Which, so good. Those couplets. <laughs> yeah. Which is, is so my often true. Is, uh, I, there's only one thing that I've done wrong. Stayed in Mississippi a day too long. <laughs> <laughs> Did not give a bird nor bush like nothing else in Tennessee. Well, that's a bit further north than <laughs> Wallace Stevens, but we'll, we'll leave it at that for the moment. Yeah. Um, so I'm intrigued by character as well and the nature of what kind of characters are populate your, your stories in this case. Uh, do you think there's any character types you're attracted to? And I'm going to even go a bit further since this is a series on EQ. Um, you know, the, the leading model on personalities is called the Big Five model, which is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Would you say your characters lean to any of those traits in particular? I mean, what kind of characters do you enjoy and you you find populating your stories, whether you you mean them to or not? Uh, Well, honestly, (laughs) I once had an argument with uh, a person sitting next to me at a dinner party in which he said, you know, there are only five personality types. And I said, no, they're not. There are many more (laughs) personalities. And of course, you know there are different ways to categorize things. But oh yes, he, yes. he and on he and I went on. Um, you know, the argument just got worse and worse. And and finally, he turned to me. He he looked away and then turned back to me. And he said, "I, frankly, my dear, you do not know what you're talking about." And so uh-huh. I think in response to the question of categories, I probably don't know what I'm talking about. But when it comes to uh, trying to uh, capture the variety I see in the world, uh, that's that's what drives me in, in creating character. Um, I'm really I I want to create a character I haven't created before. I, I want to um, somehow give form to a sensibility that is absolutely unique. And for some reason, ever since I started writing, I, 
my characters have been described as eccentric, probably neurotic, but you know, that might tell you about me. <laughs> That's, you know, neurotic and eccentric. I don't know. Um, but uh, really I'm after what any portrait painter is after the, the uh, uniqueness of the individual. Um, so I would have to say that I, I, I you know, in, 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 in trying to describe uh, any uh, pull toward toward uh, a type uh, I if if I do have that pull I'm, I'm constantly resisting it okay well that's fair enough and I, I certainly didn't mean to categorize but I, I would confess that having read uh, arrogance your, your earlier book about the writer uh, uh, the painter actually Egon Scheele, <laughs> I came into this collection saying, hmm, I'm wondering to what extent we'll be coming across fairly neurotic types. Oh, uh, well, this is and, like, why? See, and, I think what, what, what the world thinks is neurotic, I, I find I utterly normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, let, let's be honest here. All human beings have all of these traits. Yeah. And neuroticism is far more common than most people will allow for. I, I've seen estimates from psychologists that about 40% of human nature is, is basically played in the, in the part of the field called neuroticism. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're all much more fragile than we might imagine. And one of my favorite quotes is from Napoleon, which I would like to imagine he said while he was retreating from Russia, which is mud is the fifth element. <laughs> so I, I think life is often rather muddy and we find our ways forward you, as best, as you, best we can. You know, you use the word fragile there. Uh, I, I, I will grab that and say, that is really something I'm, I do try to uh, honor the, the fragileness of, of, human nature how how uh, even in strength how delicate we all are and vulnerable um and and perhaps the eccentricities and neuroticisms that i i do give expression to are uh, addressing that the the uh, compensation that happens uh when people are trying to mask their uh vulnerabilities well and i and i thought of it in part because uh when i get to the when i got to the short story somewhere in germantown mm -hmm. uh we have someone who you know at one point says do you want to paint me in the nude uh, <laughs> out in the public and um you know obviously things are taking a, a turn and um you know it gets to be a very interesting encounter but i was also interested in that case with the the voice because uh, you know, you have the painter and you have this person who wants to be painted. And I found myself, and I don't know if you ever have had this come up, but there was such a difference in the, uh, the sensibilities and perhaps the level of education of yeah. the, the main characters in that short story that I thought of the very early plays by Harold Pinter, who, of course, came from the rough and tumble east part of London ah. and moved into a more refined world. But some of his early plays really did a great job of playing off how those characters thought, how they spoke, uh, how their world's views clashed, and some of that clash was going on in that story. Absolutely, the uh, and and the painter in that story doesn't doesn't say much. Uh, the the narrator, uh, the the guy who wants to be painted, really dominates. Yes. Um, I'm reminded of a experience I had with Pinter, whose work I've always loved. Um, I had been reading his 
uh, actually the screenplay version of uh, Accident. And I, I ran into him at a conference once. I turned the corner and suddenly I was facing Harold Pinter. And I said, oh, you're Harold Pinter. And he said, I am indeed. <laughs> I, said, I can't believe it. I just happened to be reading The Accident. And he lowered his glasses further down the bridge of his nose and he said, accident. And I, being so sure of myself, about my reading abilities, said, no, no, it's the accident. He, he, the author of this accident. And I said, oh, it must be the American version. It's, they have you know, the title is the accident. Finally, you know, he thought, I, I, well, I can't imagine what he's saying. He took off his glasses, he rubbed them, and he said, I can't blow my nose with my glasses on. And he blew his nose and walked away. And I thought, <laughs> that was my chance with Harold Pinter. But what I learned was about the importance of articles. <laughs> the, the, uh, the or not the. <laughs> so, so I have to, before we run out of time here, I have to actually invoke two other writers that I thought of while reading this. Uh, one, even before you brought it in, because the title of this episode is actually taken from an allusion to to Proust. But I, I thought about Proust because there is a painterly quality to the writing here, which is, you know, gorgeous writing and has that real attention to detail that absorbs you. But the other writer I thought of was Borges. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you would see that same connection, perhaps. I, I love Borges. And uh, the I, I love Borges most when he is really logical. You know, he's a great writer of detective stories and uh, the 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 way he circles around a, a mystery and and tries to approach a, a solution um is just is, is wonderful and and then the paradoxes of of uh his his humor the the uh the author of don quixote you know who, who rewrites the whole uh book and does it it word by word and insists that his version is better than the cervantes version i love yes definitely love okay yeah no i i i thought of him many times over this kind of this you know this this line between fact and fiction mm -hmm. of fact and fantasy um i even went so far as saying to myself hi huh, it's kind of like it's you know, there's something that's logically illogical about what the characters are doing in Joanna's stories. Yeah, because yeah, they the are they are trying so hard to be conscientious, but they're actually rather neurotic in many instances. Oh no! As if they're important. as yeah. if they're trying to paper over the world or or make progress and control circumstances when life can't be controlled. Right. Well, you know, in in the Garden of the Forking Paths by by Borges, there's that uh, really uh, that. It begins with with uh, in, insistence on on the content as as factual, and you can see that that breaking down pretty quickly. Uh, but the perhaps the neuroses is in the the culture itself that there is a a need to uh, insist on a a single version of culture of, of, of history uh, when in fact that the very insistence might 
be a little neurotic. Uh, there, there uh, might be uh, uh, too much of an effort to cover up uncertainty, to to cover up contradiction. Um, so, so you know, I'll go perhaps admit to I. Uh, interest in neuroses when it comes to uh, social, cultural, historical neuroses. How about that? Yeah, you know, that would be very much what I meant. That's one of the reasons I was taken with the principles of uncertainty story, that there mm-hmm. is an attempt to paper over or, you know, people are caught, of course, in the prism of their own perspective, their experiences, mm-hmm. a process they're trying to follow um, mm-hmm. to try to bring some discipline or, you know, orderliness to life. Um, when, you know, that's often a vain attempt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we've, we've belabored neuroticism half to death. So at the <laughs> risk of being neurotic myself, I will. <laughs> oh, it's, it's my, my fault all the way. Um, <laughs> I, I'll own up to it and take responsibility. But I, I do want to thank you, Joanna, so much for your time. Uh, and thanks for being my guest here on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 56 titled Absolute Unproductive Beauty. My guest, Joanna Scott, she is the author of, among other books, Excuse Me While I Disappear. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Check out other episodes. You can find them on either my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, or you can go to the New Books Network and check out Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight under the special series programming. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Given the thematic subject matter of today's topic, I had this quote from Albert Camus who said, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.